You're listening to the Brand Builders Podcast with your hosts, Scott Dunstan and Brian Young. Welcome to another episode of the award-winning Brand Builders Podcast powered by the Dunstan Group. My name is Brian Young. We are here with the president of the Dunstan Group, Scott Dunstan. And we are here with A.W. Burgess, who is a domestic violence consultant Now, you know, everyone loves a comeback story. Our next guest has one you are not going to want to miss. You know, with a promising future in collegiate and professional sports, our guest had really the fairy tale derail, if you call it, when he went to prison in his senior year of college as a result of a domestic violence conviction. Now, after receiving mental and behavioral services to recover, you know, he emerged from prison as a change agent charged to help individuals find the root cause of their violent behavior and to help these individuals and their families break, you know, that cycle and really recover from that. You know, now currently he is a domestic violence consultant, like we mentioned, but he's also an advocate and a speaker. He is the author of the book, The Family Man, Solutions for Permanently Eradicating Domestic Violence, Child Abuse and Bullying. A.W. Burgess, welcome to the award-winning Brand Builders Podcast. You have a hell of a story. Let's get started by talking about your past and how you got here today. When I was seven, um, my mom tried to kill me. And uh, I remember that night, like it was yesterday, she tried to smother me. And um, fortunately, where you know I, I slept with my mom and the way the bed was set up, my, my um, arm and my leg was actually hitting the wall. My aunt was on the other side of that wall, heard this, you know, what is this banging? What's going on? Just out of curiosity, comes to the door, realizes the door is locked, and then remembers the state of mind of what my mom was going through at the time. She gets into the door. She literally pulls me from under the pillow with my mom who was on top of me. And I remember, you know, her rushing me away into another room, locks the door, And I can remember hearing my mom screams from outside saying, give me back my baby. Give me back my baby. I have the right to do whatever I wish with my baby. And I remember thinking, you know, what what just happened? Like, what's going on? Three or four days later, you know, my mom leaves. I never forget it. She was gone. And three or four days later, my mom pops back up. And this is where I think from from children who experience abuse, where things can change. When my mom came back, my aunt and my grandmother told me, don't you ever tell anybody what happened because one, no one's gonna believe you because nothing really happened. And I remember thinking at that very moment, when I get old enough, I'm gonna kill everybody in this house. And and because I thought that, and, and at that point in time, I believed that they thought that I was making it up. And I thought my aunt saw what was going on, pulled me out, and now she's telling me, don't go to school and tell anyone because, one, if you do, then they're going to take you away from us. So it was very confusing. You know, as a seven-year-old? Seven-year-old. Very confusing. And, you know, and like I said, a lot of children become very bitter because when a parent doesn't believe you, or adults who are supposed to be your caregivers don't believe you when you tell them something like that has occurred, then I think a lot of children become very mean, a lot of children become depressed, and this is where anger builds up. And, uh, and so I became a bully, and when I mean a bully, I'm talking about a bully for everybody. 
And when that happened, you know, you start talking back to adults, you start disrespecting people, neighbors. And so my my aunt and my uncles and my mom, I think they took it almost as a challenge to break me as a, as a, as a child, like this disrespectful kid. And so they would put me in a basement at night by myself. And I remember being down there, it's like to this day, I'm not afraid of anything because I think, you know, I realize, okay, these are bricks. They just cut the light off. But I think in the mentality of a normal kid, you would have been scared of being in the dark. But I think that that experience is what took away that normalcy of how to normally react. And, uh, and it just made me even more meaner and, and, and upset about, I hate my family. I hate these people. I hate coming home. And that's what led to childhood bullying, which is why bullying is so important to me because I know why kids are lashing out, why they're you know in a position to try and hurt others because really they're trying, like I said earlier, they're, they're pay, you're paying a price as a victim based on somebody else's crime, based on somebody else's pain that they're now inflicting upon you. And so that became my experience as a child, you know, that um, to bully people, to intimidate people, and, you know, by 11, you know, here I have my, you know, grandmother's gun, little 22. Now you can't tell me anything because not only can I fight you, and if I felt like you were that much of a threat when I showed that gun, you really break down. And so, you know, to have those experiences, um, you know, I, I, I really do empathize with individuals who are, are considered threats because I know there's a root cause to that threat. And, um, and so that's really, you know, as far as my story, I became this incredible athlete, went to an incredible high school um, where I was going to school with, you know, I went to a prep school, one of the best prep schools in this country, a school called McDonough, uh, located in, you know, in Baltimore in the suburbs. And it was a phenomenal school, phenomenal people, exceptional children. And, um, but I, I, you know, as much as I could relate to them is as much as I couldn't relate to them because it was almost like a facade of, I don't belong here. I'm a poor kid, you know, and um, but you understand how money moves and you start to see, well, there's no difference being at this prep school as far as everybody wanting to be successful and make a bunch of money than it is being in a poor being a poor kid. And again, everybody's trying to get to the money. And uh, and so I realized then that it was really about, um, you know, um, being a relational person and having relationships with uh, individuals. And to this day, I still have some great friendships with those folks who now really understand why I was this incredible football player because now, you know, you're taking that violence out on other people. And uh, But I think what makes sense to them now is, like many of my classmates said, you were the very first person, not just being a child, but the very first young adult that I ever see cuss out a coach that would talk back to a teacher and wasn't scared of the consequences. And, uh, and I think that those were the signs of um, an individual who um, has some serious mental issues, um, to be that disrespectful, to be that bold and brazen. Um, you know, again, you know, um, so, you know, I, I did very well in sports. It, it, it took me to having a choice of just about every school out there to, to attend because of sports. Uh, elite athlete in baseball. So I literally had an agent, you know. Um, I remember being like 15, 16 years old with Cal Ripken Jr. and Eddie Murray and all of these, you know, um, professional baseball players coming through. 
And, uh, and my life was pretty much set, like pretty much set when it comes to sports. Uh, I just knew I was going to end up in one of the leagues. Uh, and um, all I really had to do was show up. So uh, I get to Oklahoma State, you know, because, um, again, best baseball program at, at that time, basically a farm league for the pros. And that's where my agent wanted me to go. And uh, so I get there, and within uh, several weeks of being there, uh, my mind was fixated on where my girlfriend was. I was worrying about where is she, who's she with. And when you think about that opportunity to, to be at an elite school, be an elite player in this country, free education, um, free housing, free everything, um, to leave that, I literally walked away from it mm-hmm. because I was so my, – my unhealthy way of thinking and processing was let me go be with her. And then when I got there, not doing my homework, you know, it's not like in, you know, 88, they had the internet. So <laughs> I thought, okay, I can go down there and, and be GPS this. track. Yeah, right. exactly. Right. <laughs> I thought I could go down there and be this phenomenal athlete. And when I got there, they were like, Hey, we don't have a baseball team. I'm like, what? I can't be Deion Sanders. I can't be Bo Jackson. Or at that time, my, you know, one of my childhood friends, uh, Brian Jordan, I can't be that. I can't play football and baseball. They're like, no. And to be honest with you, we can't even offer you a scholarship because we're on probation. So I literally was like, who's going to play football with no scholarship? That's like driving a car with no insurance. Are you kidding (laughs) me? And uh, and like I said, my ego was so out of here. Like, hey, I'm coming from this D1 school to this little HBCU. Are you kidding me? This is insulting. And, And literally, you know, when you don't sharpen your skills and keep your skills, you know, sharp, I fell out of love with it, and um, and uh, so that that career, that career aspiration of playing in the pros was pretty much over, and 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 over because of my crazy way of processing to be with another human being, not healthy, right? Fast forward to my senior year, um, again, you know, as an athlete, you go from being this uh, exceptional athlete to now you're an exceptional person in a classroom. Excuse me. <clears throat> so I um, became this exceptional intern for a company, Fortune 500 company. Um, had the literally had the ear of the the president, the owner of the company. And uh, he says to me, and you know, in August, getting ready to go back for my senior year, he says, "A.W., oh my God, A.W., man, you're gonna live a phenomenal life. All I need you to do for me is do two things." He says, "Have fun and graduate." He said, and if you do that, and he slipped me a piece of paper, and it was a, a offer sheet for $125,000 a year job as a corporate intern, I mean, as a corporate employee in the uh, law division, because I want to be a corporate attorney. And he says to me, he says, don't worry about money. There's that. Law school's paid for. And he says, you and my company one day are going to, you and my kids are going to run this company one day. You will live a, an exceptional life. I'm going to make sure of it. So again, have fun, enjoy your senior year, and graduate. Within two weeks, I'm locked up because of domestic violence. Mm. Mm. And, you know, and, and so when you think about that, it's like who is crazy enough to throw away that kind of opportunity that's literally on the table for you? And that's part of that mental health, um, you know, uh, scenario that if you don't, you can have everything and then lose it all in a matter of seconds of because of decisions or lack thereof of thinking about the consequences. 
And I was really reactionary. I wasn't proactive uh, about my mental health. And, you know, so I go to jail. Um, a lawyer, you know, lawyer that says, hey, you know, you've never been in trouble. So if you just go over here and get some counseling, you know, the judge, they'll throw it out. And this won't impact your, you know, your background. You'll be able to still go to law school. And I'm looking, like, looking at her like, you don't understand. I have no family. I've been homeless for, you know, two years. My girlfriend just broke up with me, which is what set me off. I really don't care. So I thought, okay, I can just, you know, get back to school. Of course, this happened on campus, and school threw me out. So now I'm thinking I don't have a family. I don't have my girlfriend who I was going to marry. I don't have school. Okay, so my lawyer says you need to go back to Baltimore. To what? I've been homeless. I don't have a home in Baltimore. Oh, you can stay at your mother's boyfriend's apartment. I'm talking to her. I said, you talking about the man that has like 14 kids by like 15 different women? <laughs> She's like, she does the math. I said, I'm being facetious. This man has all these babies. Never t- You want me to go live with him? I've never said two words to this man other than to cuss him out, you know? And so I end back and end up in Baltimore and um, I get a call from a frat brother, friend of, you know, one of my guys that we, you know, had, uh, was attempting to pledge with. And uh, he says, Hey, W, I know why your girlfriend left you. Well, why? Said, Man, she was cheating on you. And I remember, you know, that's like telling a crazy, I was, I was out of my mind. That was like one of the worst things for anybody to tell me. You talking about a trigger. I think I got from Baltimore to Hampton in less than 20 minutes. That's as fast <laughs> as I was driving. And within, you know, two hours, I was standing with a gun, you know, at her, demanding she get in a car. 20 minutes later, I'm back in jail because she said, hey, I just got to go in here and... I said, all I want to do is talk. You know, I'm demanding. I'm forcing my will on her. I just want to talk. You're going to tell me why you broke up with me. She goes in the building. And I swear the cops were coming out the sky, the ground, rightfully so. And uh, and that's when I started my time and, and really into the penal system, you know, and uh, and and it actually saved my life. Hmm. I don't mean. <laughs> yeah. I'm speechless. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll jump in. I mean, hey, thank you for sharing that. No problem. Um, that's, that's an incredible story, but I think it's going to be amazing to see how you've come from that. Mm-hmm. Now, going to prison, um, tell us about that experience and, and where where did it change, right? Because the reality of this situation is you were you were not given the opportunity that every kid should have, right? And that's mm-hmm. having a loving mother and father giving you that opportunity. So you had to go through so much, mm-hmm. but you still succeeded a lot in life mm-hmm. to be that good of an athlete. There were a lot of struggles that you overcame and you were still successful in certain areas. Now you're in prison mm-hmm. thinking, what do I have left? But there had sure. to be a change. Tell us about that experience and what that change was. Uh, great question. Thank you uh, for for uh, asking that because that's why I'm here today. Um, in prison, I thought, <clears throat> okay, truthfully, prison was no different than being in Baltimore, just with, just honestly, with just some fences around it. Um, just because of the intensity, just because you know, again, like I said earlier, you know, it's all relational with me. So even when I got there. And it's kind of like if you remember your very first days of middle school, it's like, uh-oh, what am I going to get, right? Mm. 
And I swear to you, within probably after being processed, 10 minutes there, uh, literally, and this is where I'm sharing with y'all, God even had his hands on me in there. Somebody screaming, A.W., A.W., and I turn around. I'm thinking, what is this correctional officer calling my name out for, you know? And it was somebody I knew from Baltimore, an inmate. So to have even that kind of protection, because, again, now you, you're seeing friends. It's like, you know, you're seeing your friends. It's like, oh, I'm good. But, you know, even in there, the, that I, I knew that in my mind, I'm like, okay, my life is over. I'm in prison I know I can't be an attorney. So it was like, oh, well, my mind was still fixated on her, blaming her, blaming, you know, my, my, my upbringing on this is how I knew I was going to end up here. That, that even my middle school principal said one in four of y'all are going to be dead before you're 25. One in four of y'all, you know, going to be in jail or prison before you're 25. One in four of y'all going to be disabled or shot before 25. So all of these things were coming true. Like I saw my friends get killed. I saw people go to jail. And again, I'm racing to not become what this person had spoken up to all of us in the seventh grade. So here I am in jail. Well, he said it. I'm in jail. So I wasn't even thinking that, okay, cool. I'm going to learn while I'm in here. I'm going to, you know, get through this. I wasn't thinking that. I was thinking like any other child that goes through things is, okay, let me survive this, and then whatever happens afterwards, let it be. But what I didn't know was the judge, when he was sentencing me, I remember he kind of looked around me and said, hey, where's your family? I'm about to sentence you to 36 years. Where's your family? And I said, I don't have a family. And he said, what do you mean you don't have a family? Everybody has a family. He said, are you a foster kid? No, I don't have a family because, like I said, I've been homeless for the last several years. I hate my family, right? And uh, my dad died before I was born. I don't have a family. And I remember he said, and I remember it was like he was scratching his head trying to figure me out, like, like, who throws away 125 grand a year job at, one, at 21 years old? Who, who gives that up? And I remember he said, you don't know why? And I said, no. And I remember I, I, I started tearing because I knew, I'm like, man, here comes 36 years. I'm doing the math. I'm like, I'm going to be in my 50s before I get out. And, and he said, you don't know? And he said, I don't understand this. If you don't understand it, I really don't understand it. And so he says, I'm going to get you help. So the change that you were saying, how did this change come about? What I didn't know was after that, he had ordered me to get a psychological evaluation. Now, what I didn't know was here I am sitting in prison, and they're like, open up Burgess, right? So, I, you know, cell opens. They said, Burgess, time to go. Get your things together. I'm like, where am I going? You know, another cell, you know, and he, they said, no, you're going to the hospital. And I said, hospital, I'm not sick. They said, it's not that kind of hospital. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, <laughs> not that kind of hospital. What kind of hospital is? So, you know, being naive, you know, 21 years old, and, you know, I, I literally remember driving and driving, like, where are we? Where are we going? And I remember pulling up to an essential state um, uh, mental uh, hospital. It was basically a psychiatric Institute for Individuals um, in Virginia. And, and what I didn't know was this is where 
<laughs> Virginia's worst were housed, and I didn't know that. And the reason why is because the doctor that this judge wanted me to see was the very best doctor in the entire state. This was the the, the person that was going to declare whether you were, you know, going to the de- de- get the death row, right? Or you're going to live on death row for the rest of your life, or you're going to get the chair, uh, or you're going to stay in the psychiatric ward for the rest of your life, or until some instant somebody by uh, um, panel people let you go. So this doctor that he assigned me to, um, Dr. Miller Ryan's, um, God rest his soul, he literally was the very first person in my entire life to ask me, how do you feel? Hmm. And I remember looking at him, and I thought, what do you mean? He says, no, seriously, in one word, could you sum up how you feel right now? And I thought, confused. He said, why do you say confused? I said, I'm confused as to why you're asking me how I feel. And he had this puzzling look like, that's just a normal question. Like, how are you doing? And I, and I said, confused. And, and I think for him, it was like, okay. And what I didn't know, or what I now know, is that he had talked to everybody, pretty much everybody in my life that was, you know, somebody that of substance and somebody that was around me. And, you know, we're, we're doing all of these things that, you know, psychiatrists do. And I remember as they were getting ready to you know, let me out. And I didn't know I was being let out, but I remember he was basically saying that we're going to wrap this whole situation up. And I, and I remember he said to me, I, I remember I showed up and he was crying. Now where I'm from at that time, a man who cries is gay or was gay. So I'm thinking, man, I didn't know this guy was gay. <laughs> you know, again, right? this is 20, you know, 20 <laughs> yeah. something year old, you know, mm-hmm. just ridiculous mindset of an individual. And he says, and I said, why are you crying? Like, you know, again, as an abuser, I'm thinking this dude is weak. And, um, and he says, because so many people that you were connected with didn't get you help. And I'm like, because I didn't need help. And they're like, yeah, you needed help. It's not normal for a 14-year-old to cuss out grown people in adult settings, you know. It's not normal for you to, you know, again, because that, that was the time when I, just like I shared with y'all, was the first, he was the very first person that I had ever shared with him about what my mom had attempted to do. Mm. The very first person I'd ever shared with about the basement. And so when he, you know, that's when the light bulb started to really go off about my men- mental health, that he had touched the root cause. And in touching the root cause, now that I was able to talk and talk what I say to my to the folks that we serve today, you gotta you gotta if you wanna be healed, it that it has to be revealed and that it are that's the internal toxins, the internal trauma, the internal troubles. And so because he allowed me to face it, to talk about it, and then to move on from it. Right to get the, the 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 coping skills to be able to deal with what was done, um, that man saved my life. And so when you ask how did I change, I changed because for the first time in my life I had a support system. For the first time in my life, you know, like a lot of children, their parents have a strategic plan for them. They even have a succession plan, right? So when for me, I didn't have somebody that literally 
marked my life out that said, okay, you're going to go to, you know, graduate from high school, go to a great college, become what, you know, or become a professional. You know, we're, we're going to save money for you to, to have a car or have, you know, college paid for or have. It was always, you, you know we're not paying. I don't have money for college. So for me, it was always I had to be a grown-up adult as a child. You got to protect yourself. You got to, you know, and when, like I said, you don't have a support system. You don't have a protection system. You don't have people who are praying the right things for you. And, and, and so that was the very first time that somebody had actually cared to ask me, how do you feel? And what I've come to realize in all these years that I've done this is many people, men and women, children, they don't have anybody to talk to. So, I mean, think about if you have no support system, no outlet, no, you know, and you're being belittled or you're being put in a basement or somebody's trying to take your life, that's urban PTSD, mm-hmm. you know? And so <clears throat> no child, uh, no human being deserves to live under a constant threat. And that's how I felt my life was. It was a constant threat that I'm either going to, somebody's going to hurt me or the best way for me is to hurt somebody else before they can hurt me. Let me leave them before they leave me because I'm so used to, you know, a parent not being there. I mean, think about a, a young boy that doesn't have a male role model. And, and it's like, you know, and I, I talked about that, that man they wanted me to go and live with. My idea of him or the, the thing that sticks out most to me about that man was I remember my mom saying, okay, I want to be better for you. I want to be better for you. I'm going to be better for you. Um, I want to take you out to, to dinner one night after I get my check. And I remember thinking, okay. And she said, where do you want to go? I said, Red Lobster. You know, you know, I think Western Sizzling, something like that. She said, okay, we're going to do that. And I remember I was all excited because I'm like, you know, I'm not going to the mall with my mother because I don't want anybody to see me with her. And so I was all excited. And then she says, hey, I got to make one stop. And I remember we stopped at a place where at the time I was a little drug dealer out there. So I knew what this community was. So I'm thinking, why are we here? And I'm thinking, it's my mom. I, I ain't never seen her out here. What, what is she doing out here? <laughs> right. Right. And so she, we pull up and she says, hey, Milton's going to come with us. And I'm like, Milton, are you talking about the guy that has all these kids by different? Oh, he's a good man. He'll be a great father figure for you. And I remember thinking, my mom is, she's silly. Okay, I'm going to be a good boy. I'm going to make this work, all right? And we go in. I remember she opens the door, and the door, it was just jet black in there. And she says, hey, be, 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 be quiet because Milton drives a bus at night. He's in the back sleeping, and he's going to come to dinner with us. So I'm thinking, damn, now, okay, all right, cool. So he's coming. All right, no problem. I'm going to be a good boy. I'm going to be a good boy. And I remember walking to the back, and I remember slowly opening the door. And I remember looking to the right, and I see Milton in there with another woman having sex. (laughs) And I remember closing the door slowly because I didn't want him to see me. And before I could close that door, my mother's right behind me. She says, what's taking so long? You know, and she looks, sees what I just saw, 
She closes the door and she says, you didn't see anything. Hmm. And I swear to y'all, I thought my mom's a stupid A.B. I said, she is the dumbest damn person I've ever met in my life. And I remember bolting out of there, getting in the car. And I remember that the lady that he was with, she, you know, she did the run of shame and, you know, jumped in the car, peeled out. And then I remember five minutes later, I see my mother and he had a robe on and they were clutched up like they were just walking down the aisle from being married. And I remember my mom, she gets in the car and she says, hey, hello to Milton. I'm looking the other way. I said, say hello to Milton. And I remember looking and I said, F you and F Milton. <laughs> and man, don't you talk to my woman like that. I was like, your woman just left out of here. <laughs> right? Okay. <clears throat> and my mom's like, say sorry to Milton. And I remember hitting my leg because that's where I used to have my gun. And I remember thinking if I had my gun, I would kill both of them right now. And I remember popping out the car and just walking off. You get back here. And I said, my mom is the dumbest person on the planet. And that was the day I lost every bit of respect for my mother. And, and, and I just thought, I hate my life. I don't want to go home to this place. I don't want to be around her. She obviously don't want to be around me, you know. And, and that became the story of my mother always chose some person or some scenario over me. I wasn't a priority. And that's what I'm sharing with you and the people who understand what it's like to be exploited, understands what it's like to be left out or never invited to the party or a party of substance. And that's how I see my family. Even to this day, nobody's changed, right? They still are. If I had to describe my family today in one word, the word would be incestuous. Because what I know now is that there were a lot of uncles and aunts and cousins hooking up, um, and I can't be around that. I can't acknowledge that or endorse that. And, um, and it's just one of those things where if you've lived in toxic environments, if you've lived in um, dysfunctional situations with people, somebody's got to get mentally well to see it for what it is. And what I know now is, and what used to, again, I couldn't answer that judge that day when he asked me, why are you this way? And I told him I could, I, I don't know why. Now I understand why. I wasn't born a monster. I was made into being a monster. And with the help of others, I was able to get the necessary and required help, uh, therapy, um, be, be, being able to get it out, those internal toxins, the internal trauma. Um, and that's really my story. Because of that, it's, that's why Family Mankind was created. Um, it was one of those things where, you know, I was very successful in business. Because think about it. You go to, you see, you're in, you didn't come out of hell. It's like if you didn't made it out of hell, I can accomplish anything. You know, so I was blessed because uh, I was, um, uh, I got a phenomenal job with uh, Rick Hendrick here in Charlotte. Uh, Rick Hendrick was one of the very, First individuals who believed in me, didn't care about my background, um, allowed me to make six figures, um, knowingly as a convicted felon. Um, and at that time, um, people were not giving felons a, a six-figure opportunity with no degree. So the, the, the point is that the village, uh, that doctor, 
the Rick Hendricks, um, the the individuals that, you know, again, going to church and being able to have spiritual counseling, being able to have clinical counseling, being able to realize that without this support system, without a strategic plan, without being able to dream and dream, you know, uh, realistically, um, I, I, I believe that I would have done worse. I believe that I, I probably would have killed somebody. I believe that I probably would have killed myself. Or I would have been where that judge sentenced me. I believe that, you know, because I was locked up with, uh, in, at that, that psychiatric uh, hospital, I literally was housed with serial killers, serial rapists, baby killers. They were scared of me. <laughs> and that's what's amazing because I know where I was mentally back then. I can see now because when you think about it, those folks were mentally you know, I was mentally wrong, you know, in my mind, but but I was I was different in the sense of I knew what they were. So I looked at them like, man, I'm going to smother you. I'm going to strangle you for what you did to that baby. I'm going to strangle you for you killing your mama, you know, whatever it might be. And so understanding that even in there, um, to be able to relate to those people, to be able to see that for what it is, um, and then to come out, to be blessed to come out of that and be afforded an opportunity. Man, every day that I live and get up, it's like, how can I impact somebody else's life? Because somebody else impacted my life. Just being here with y'all, y'all are impacting my life. And, and so I just pray that if I can raise my hand and say, hey, I'm A.W. Burgess, I'm a former domestic violence offender. Um, this is what it cost me. I'm praying that it'll never cost you that. You know, join me, get the help. You can stay anonymous. You don't have to put your, you know, personal business out there. I, it's like being in school. I just need you in the classroom. You don't have to speak. You don't have to bring the apple to the teacher. But I just need you to hear what I'm sharing with you, and I need you to share with me to get the it out of you so that you can be healed, you can be delivered from the things that are keeping you bottled up, which is what is causing the violence. That's incredible. Um, rarely do we not have to speak on a podcast. <laughs> I, I tell you, yeah, yeah. One thing, yeah. One thing I, yeah, I want to ask you, and, and mm -hmm. again, thank you so much for sharing this. I think this is going to to really hit home with a lot of people. And and I have two sons, and you know, for me, my whole goal is to give my children the life that my father gave me and my mother gave me. And it wasn't that they gave me everything; they yeah. could have given me more. Right. But the reality is they grew me. They, they loved me. They challenged me, yes. but they were there for me. Right. They asked me, how are you feeling? How are you doing? And I want to be able to do that for my children. But at the same time, as a community of Charlotte, as a, as a nation, there's a lot of children that don't have that opportunity. What can we as a society do that maybe we are doing everything we can in our own home, but is it you know, maybe looking at other kids in your in your kids' classrooms that maybe don't have that. Mm -hmm. Mentoring, volunteering. What can we do as a community? Because I listened to this entire conversation and did it just take one person to ask you how you're feeling? Like, what if that question happened from a coach when you were 14? Mm -hmm. What if that happened when you were 12? What if, I mean, I, I'm a coach of under six kids, you know, you six. Now they're little babies. They, they're all, they're all doing fine, you know, whatever. But maybe there is a scenario where I have a single mom that's showing up there and maybe there is an opportunity for me to help more than I am. And maybe it's just asking the right questions. I know this is kind of a, 
a, a question that probably doesn't have one answer, hmm. but what is your best advice for the community to be able to support people? Because I'm looking at this in your life, it transitioned into your life, right? It, it, your world created the world that you then were doing the same thing that you were running from, mm-hmm. right? And then it took you going to prison, going to that doctor and having that conversation and then realizing that you did have control. How could do we as a community get the keys back in the hands of kids that maybe don't have that opportunity? What, do, what, what can we do in that world? I, I believe that, you know, all of us, um, <clears throat> we come across a lot of people uh, just, just your podcast, being able to speak to people to um, say that when you look at how does a person end up that way, right? Um, there are so many people that are, are frowning behind the smile. So it's, it's like, you know, everybody, when you ask somebody, hey, how you doing? I'm good, right? <laughs> That's our natural, I'm good. It's like walking to a store. Can I help you? Yep, yep, I'm just looking, right? So it's a natural reaction for so many of us um, who are in public, right? You know, like you said, that single mother. But again, are you prepared when you ask the question, how are you feeling? What type of help do you need? Is there anything I can help you with? When you see that, um, you got to be prepared because sometimes I think we're not prepared when somebody says, yes, oh my God, I really do need your help. And you're like, whoa, 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 I wasn't prepared for that. <laughs> I just wanted you to say I'm good. Yeah, yeah. Right. There you go. <laughs> right. So I think, you know, I think, you know, in all of us, we have to be prepared that if somebody says, if we see a situation, you know, it's kind of like when we go past the homeless in our community, something tells some of us, man, let me give them 10 bucks or whatever it might be. Oh, I feel better, right? But then there are other of us that can just drive right past and it doesn't bother me. Hey, you can always have poor people living amongst you. It's not, not my issue, not my fight. So I think the first thing in everyone's mind has to be, how, how do I wish to help others? You know, and, and, and is that volunteering at a family mankind? Is that with my time, my talents, my resources? You know, I, I think, you know, for me, my very first thing as, as a domestic violence uh, uh, individual is safety, right? Safety um, uh, for you, um, you know, our volunteers, because people mean well, you know, but sometimes it's like I've, I've had people say, I don't know how to help. And, and they don't understand that it's not as simple as, it, you know, like I had one lady say, I just want to cook for these families. And I said, well, okay, how's that? You know, do you want to go to their house? Do you want to drop food off? Do you want us to take it to them? Because I think some people want to be on the front lines, but then when they get to the front lines, it's like, whoa, A.W., when I was over there cooking, this gentleman walked up, threatened me. What are you doing here? And she got scared for me. And 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 so, you know, domestic violence is a different kind of volunteering, you know, and um, and so for me, in our daily walks, it's just meet people where they are and see where you can grow them, you know, from there. Um, like I said, we got a lot of folks who, um, you know, again, donate their time. Some folks, you know, again, we, we got folks that want to donate their, you know, their, their treasures. Um, I, I would just say the first thing, especially when it comes to domestic violence, is safety. Um, how do we safely help people? Um, but, um, cause that's fulfillment, you know, um, being able to, you know, do what you do and impact people versus, okay, let me go and do this. But it's like, oh man, I didn't want to throw these boxes on this truck to help somebody move. I, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. 
So for me, it's like I want people that, that are helping us to do what they normally do because then it keeps them safe, and that's where their real fulfillment is, right? Um, like I said, it's, it's a very dangerous business. I deal with the offenders. I deal with victims who are currently in the situations. I'm dealing with folks who— I'm dealing with folks who haven't dealt with it for 30 and 40 years. You know, many of my volunteers that, you know, come to our sessions for, you know, the different groups, they're like, oh, my God, A.W., I came here because of, you know, I wanted to help somebody, and this ended up helping me. Mm -hmm. Like, I never dealt with watching my dad beat my mom. I never dealt with, you know, the fact that I hated my mother because she never left my dad because, you know, he was abusing all of us. So, you know, so again, you know, if it's, if it's for me, I just want to meet you where you are, um, find a, you know, a safe solution for you. Um, but I would tell you, really, don't try to be a hero. Think safety first. Because it's like if your sister called you and said your brother-in-law was beating the crap out of her, most people's reaction is, I'm over there, honey. I'll be there in two seconds, sis. But they don't, you don't realize the fact is that most people who get killed in domestic violence situations are the interveners. Mm -hmm. right? wow. That's why cops are like, hey, I'd rather go to a bank robbery than a domestic violence call. Mm -hmm. So it's thinking smart. So, again, having a strategy. You know, does he have a weapon? Where are the kids? You know, so that's what I'm sharing with you, that a lot of people that help us or want to help us, we want to make sure they understand all the rules uh, of serving um, so that we keep everybody um, safe because we understand people do want, think about why we want to volunteer. I want to help, but it's making sure that your help turns into true help and impact versus now you become traumatized behind just trying to help somebody. It's kind of like walking up to a guy, like I said, on the corner. Some folks, you know, this is all you got. You, you driving that fancy car, you can only give me $20. You know, you you have people out there. I mean, we got chest. I had some volunteers that took pizzas down. Remember when Tent City was out there? Oh, yeah. They took pizzas down there. And I told them, always consult with us first because, you know, so they got down there. They didn't consult with us. They had volunteered with us before, uh, you know, serving food down there. So they thought, oh, proactively, let me just walk up on it. They walked up on there, and they literally walked out of it with pizza thrown on them. And they couldn't figure it out. Like, oh, my God, this is ridiculous, A.W., Why? So actually, when I showed up, I'm like, all right, who, who did this to you? We've got the relationship. I've got the relationship. And like I said, I'm not scared of anything. If I die this, I die doing what I'm doing, mm -hmm. right? And so when I walk up to him, he's like, hey, Debbie, I'm tired of these people coming down here with, with just pizza. They never <laughs> asked us what we wanted. <laughs> and I'm sitting there like, what? But, but when you think about it, if you got people bringing pizza 25 days in a row— it's kind of like the humanity kicks in, like, man, if y'all going to bring something down here, get some hot dogs and hamburgers every now and then. Let's switch it up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, but see, and that's what I'm telling you, that the language of mental health, you're dealing with people that that are sleeping out in the woods. So it's like you got to be respectful, and it's kind of like coming to a neighborhood or coming to your house, call first. Understand your audience, right? Exactly, yeah. and, and that's what I'm saying, the complications of mental health. And when I said that, they were like, you know what? You're right. I, I never thought of that. I never thought that, yes, they are still human beings. Because, you know, the first thing is you ungrateful, you mm -hmm. know, we're bringing food down here. But, again, it's, it's, 
it's the complexity of mental health and dysfunction. You're dealing with something much more. They, and half of them are, uh, you know, are on drugs, you know, and so you're dealing with somebody that is complicated. And so that's why I said for us, you know, you can serve in so many different ways. Um, and we just want to meet them, you know, meet people where they are and keep everybody safe and make sure that everybody gets something out of the deal from an impactful standpoint. I love it, man. For people that are listening, what's the best way to get in contact with you to learn more about Family Mankind? That's what it is, right? Family yep. Mankind? Okay, mm-hmm. good. I want to make sure I said that right. <laughs> um, and, and all of that. Tell us about how they can get in contact with you or if, if they're going through something, if they know people that are going through mm-hmm. something, what's the best way to do that? Very simple. Our, our website is the best way, um, familymankind.org um, um, or awburgess.com. Um, you know, the best way, you know, obviously, you know, you know, people call me directly. I have no problem with that because, um, you know, at the end of the day, we want to help people. Um, you know, we want to, you know, help fulfill people's dreams of, of wanting to help serve others. Um, so again, uh, you can reach me at awburgess at awburgess.com or our journal uh, website information uh, is um, a wolf, A-W-O-L-F at familymankind.org. Yeah, so you can contact me directly. Um, you know, our number is 704-287-0086. Um, or you can use our 24-7 hotline, which is, you know, 833-346-9537. And basically it's 833-3-HOWLER. And uh, like the wolf, right? (laughs) Howler, H-O-W-L-E-R. And we do that because we want folks to talk it out. You know, Um, that's, that's the biggest thing. Yeah. I I love it, man. The, um, your guys' mission, rehabilitation, recovery, restoration, and resiliency, literally helping God save lives and legacies by breaking the cycles of generational violence Mm -hmm. says it all. And just thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for being open about it. And ultimately thank you for taking that story and making our community a better spot. One person at a time. Um, we always talk about this podcast and we've had some amazing people on with CEOs and made money and done these things, but really the nonprofits is what I think me and Scott and our entire company love sharing because it's real, it's raw and it's, it's what's going on in our community. And if there's people that can help you, that's great. But your story is very inspirational. I can't wait to read your book. (laughs) <laughs> and, um, I'll bring you out. Just good for you. I'm, I don't know, man. I'm proud of you. Thank you. I appreciate you know? it. I, I appreciate y'all. I got to ask you though. How you feeling? How you feeling? <laughs> <laughs> Was this right, good? All right. I'll tell you how I'm feeling. Right. I'm, I, I, again, when I got to Harvard, they asked that question <laughs> and I said, ebullient. And they were like, <laughs> ebullient? I said, y'all are Harvard, right? <laughs> right? Y'all don't know what the word is. Ebullient means cheerful and full of energy. And, uh, and and I love it because I think all of us are drawn, we're magnetized to great energy. You know, and it's like one bad person can come here and set the whole tone. So for me, it's like, let, you know, there, there was a song when we were kids called This Little Light of Mine. Mm-hmm. I'm going to let it shine. And that's what we're sharing with people. You got to have your light back on because a lot of people are trying to blow your light out, trying to put it out. But what I'm sharing with you is you are the light. You are the magnetism. That's why we're attracted to one another. And so literally, yeah, ebullient, cheerful, and full of energy. 
What a great answer. Well, yeah. <laughs> You're so inspiring, man. Thank you. We are That's ending so it on y'all. that for Thank sure. You. Um, this was incredible. Like we always say, please go like, share, comment, go follow the story. If you have anybody in your life that's dealing with anything, uh, domestic violence, any issues, um, you can reach out to me and Scott. We'll obviously get you in contact with A.W. Burgess, but you can go on their website uh, as well. And as a community, you know, I, I always say just just look for look for signs, but be there. And if it's not something that you can do, call up A.W. He'll do it, yes. you know. And so um, just thank you again for being the, the shining light in the community and taking your story and, and making it an amazing novel, I would say, that's still getting written. Um, But it's incredible. So until next time, thank you so much for listening uh, to this episode of the award-winning Brand Builders Podcast. You've been listening to the Brand Builders Podcast, brought to you by the Dunstan Group with your host, Scott Dunstan and Brian Young. For branded merchandise and apparel that makes first impressions and ones that last, check out the Dunstan Group at dunstangroup.com.